kind of what I was looking for in this question. And we got very little bit early. That's okay. The importance of the abomination and desolation. Ooh, I should have put this on after my jacket. Is uh, the midpoint of the tribulation. All right. And how do we know that this could not have taken place in 167 or 70 AD with Antiochus Epiphanes or Titus going into Rome? Why could that not be the, the ultimate abomination of desolation that Jesus is speaking about here in Mark 13? Or, or could it? Are you guys not convinced? <laughs> when Jesus didn't return in the Mount of Olives, that's what it happened. Yes. Plus, this came after 167, right? That's like a dead giveaway for that one. But, And I think that one matches a lot more what we're told to look for than 70 AD. 70 AD had, I mean, that was terrible. That was a, a tragic event. But as far as the actual abomination of desolation, somebody going in, uh, disrupting the temple in the way that Antiochus Epiphanes did, I don't think anything even close to that took place in 70 AD. Uh, but in the end, that's what we're told to look for. We looked at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and how the man of lawlessness, he will go in and uh, proclaim himself to be God, proclaim himself to be equal with God. That's the kind of abomination of desolation that we should expect. Well, not we, but should be expected in the tribulation. And then verse 19 of Mark 13 says that this is going to be a, an unparalleled event says, for those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation which God created until now and never will. Again, absolutely unparalleled. And then, uh, who are the 70 weeks of Daniel decreed for and why is that important for our understanding of eschatology? Eschatology is a study of end times. What do you think? We went over this last week. <coughs> 70 weeks of Daniel, from Daniel chapter 9. Who are they addressed to? Who are they decreed for? Yeah, for the Jews. For the Jews and for the, the holy city, for Jerusalem, right? It says that, I think it's 24, Daniel 9, 24, that this is who these things are decreed for. And that's really important for our understanding of eschatology because Why? Remember that the, the 70th week of Daniel, we've equated with the tribulation, right? That is the, the one week, the one seven-year period that is left that's to take place during the tribulation. Do you guys plan on being there? I think I'm busy that day. Yeah, that's a good day to be busy. Yeah, I am busy that day too. I will be busy in my glorified body, serving my king in heaven because the church will be gone, right? Um, speaking of 1 Thessalonians 5, let's turn back to, or let's turn to 1 Thessalonians 5 and take a look at that, the fact that we will not be here during that time. 1 Thessalonians 5, in verse 9. That's a beautiful verse for the church. Remember that the church is distinct from God's people during other uh, time periods, other dispensations in history, either past or, or future. Uh, the church is unique. We're the, the parentheses in between week 69 and week 70 of Daniel's prophecy. So 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He's not destined us for wrath. That's not what we should look forward to. That's a time of Jacob's trouble, right? Uh, Jeremiah 30, I believe. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1 also, in verse 10, says that he, Jesus, is one who rescues us from the wrath to come. So two great verses in 1 Thessalonians, both in chapter 5 and chapter 1, talk about how we, the church, are going to escape that wrath that is to come. And that's why it's important to realize that those 70 weeks are reserved for uh, the Jews, right? For, for the Israelite people, not for the church. Any other thoughts or questions before we move on? And I'll pull that back up to refresh your memories from last week and uh, make sure you don't have any comments or questions on that because, again, that was a lot we dropped on you last week. It's important to remember that the rapture comes unexpectedly, right? Nothing has to take place before the rapture. Um, I think we can forget that oftentimes when we're looking at timelines like this, thinking, okay, well, there's a lot yet to come, and so Jesus is going to come back someday. Well, Jesus is going to come back for us at any point, any moment. It's imminent, right? Nothing has to take place before he comes back for the church, comes back like a thief in the dark, right? At any point. All right. Well, let's look at our text today. We're in Mark 13, and we will seek to wrap up the chapter today. I'll go ahead and read verses 24 through 27 for us, talking about the coming of the Son of Man. It's a, a great passage. Uh, remember, we the church, will we will have already been uh, raptured and taken up and be with Jesus at this point, but great passage nonetheless. Mark 13, 24 through 27. But in those days, after that tribulation, that's important, we just looked at the tribulation, right? After that tribulation... The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels, and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven." So in this section, we see that Jesus is speaking of some incredible cosmic events, right? Things that are taking place in the heavenlies, uh, stars that are falling, uh, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. These are incredible cosmic events that Jesus is talking about that are going to take place. And this isn't the first time that we see this kind of language used. This isn't the only time we see this kind of language used. And I want to put you guys to work this morning and ask you to help me look up these passages so we can go through and look at different usages of this same kind of similar language in the Old Testament. So, who can I get to look up Isaiah 13 for me? Who's got that passage? Jerry? All right, Jamie can get Ezekiel 32, 7 through 11. What about Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18? Who's got that one? Logan's got that. And then Zechariah 14, 1 through 6. Sam. All right. We'll get you thrown in there later, maybe. All right. So as we're going through and looking at these, I want you guys to uh, recall the the different understandings of uh, eschatology that we've talked about so far, right? The different views, particularly of 70 AD and the importance of 70 AD when it comes to understanding our Bible. There was the preterist view. Remember that? the group that says, no, everything in the Bible that's all fulfilled, all prophecy has been fulfilled in 70 AD. 
we talked about the partial preterist view, which thinks that the majority of it took place in 70 AD, but they're still looking forward to the second coming of Christ and uh, to final judgment, to a new heaven, new earth. But where our church stands, we are futurists. We think that the vast majority of what we're reading here in uh, Mark 13, especially toward the end of Mark 13 here where we are now, it's talking about the future. Uh, Revelation, the vast majority of that is talking about the future after chapter 3. Um, and it's something that's still yet to take place. So keep that in mind because the reason that a lot of preterists and partial preterists believe the way that they do and the way that they justify this text and how it's speaking about these cosmic events, these cosmic signs of the sun being darkened and moon being darkened and stars falling from the sky is they'll say, well, that's a, a different kind of language. That's apocalyptic language that's being used there. And so we don't need to take that seriously. That's just hyperbolic language, just the author of the, the text speaking prophetically using these grandiose hyperbolic terms. And it's been done before. And they'll go back and they'll point to the Old Testament and say, well, look here at how hyperbolic this language is. And um, because that was used in that case in that way, then Jesus here must be speaking the same way. He's just, um, he's blowing things out of proportion, kind of, right? Uh, he doesn't really think that the sun and moon are going to fall. He's just saying it's going to be a really bad day. Uh, I disagree with that. I think that uh, that's, we should understand this to be literal. And as we've talked about before, in, uh, in prophetic events, there's often a, a dual fulfillment, right? That's what we saw last week with Antiochus Epiphanes and with the destruction of Jerusalem. That that's kind of a, a foreshadowing of what's to come later, of what's really going to happen, which is the, the far fulfillment of this prophecy. And I think we see the same things going on in these passages that we're about to look up. So, uh, Jerry, you have that first one in Isaiah, right? Um, if you guys aren't reading, even if you are reading, it'd be good to try to follow along and um, be in the passage that we're reading. So go ahead and read that out for us, Jerry, whenever you're ready. Well, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall in, and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger make the land a desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. All right. Thank you. So, uh, before we really get into this passage, I want to spend some time in this passage and look at some inconsistencies within some other uh, positions I just discussed. But first, I think it's important that we look at this, the way this passage starts off in verse 6, saying, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Now there's a, a whole lot that could be say about, said about the day of the Lord, or as we often see it in Scripture, it's just called that day. Uh, we could do a, an entire series on the day of the Lord. It'd be probably good to do an entire series on the day of the Lord soon. Uh, 
someday. Um, maybe in, in, in that day, before that day. It'd be good to do a, a series on the day of the Lord. Um, but just to kind of give a, a brief overview of how we should understand the day of the Lord, we should understand the day of the Lord to have uh, both a narrow and a broad sense. So in a narrow sense, the day of the Lord could be speaking to like a, a narrow day, that day when Jesus is coming back, his second coming, the single day when he comes back. However, Scripture most often speaks of the day of the Lord in a, a broader sense than that, not just of that one day, but of the time period of the tribulation, the second coming, and even the millennium. They're all referenced as the day of the Lord, where God is going to come and he's going to exercise his, his wrath and his judgment on Israel within that 70th week of Daniel, but even carrying on into the millennium and after the millennium when he's going to judge finally at the great white throne judgment all uh, nations and all sin. It's going to be ultimately judged after the millennium. So that's the broad sense of the day of the Lord. Also, as I just mentioned, we should understand that there's both a, a near and a far fulfillment associated with the day of the Lord. So a near fulfillment in reference to prompt destruction. And so oftentimes, I think this is a, an example of this, where we can see a near and a far fulfillment. So Isaiah, he's speaking in this context during the Babylonian captivity, right? Or leading up to the Babylonian captivity. So this is in reference to Babylon in its near sense, in the near fulfillment of this uh, reference of the day of the Lord being near. However, we should also understand that there's a, a far fulfillment of the day of the Lord, uh, just with, with prophecy in general, as I mentioned, uh, both a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. This is the, the dual fulfillment aspect that we see very oftentimes in prophecy. And the far fulfillment is looking toward the the later day of the Lord, this, again, tribulation period, second coming, and then into the millennium and the, the great white throne judgment of Christ. So if we look at this passage, uh, we do see some of that same language that Jesus was using in Mark 10. If you notice in verse 10 of Isaiah 13, it says, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. That sounds very similar to what Jesus said in Mark 13, right? The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. And again, some want to suggest that this is hyperbolic, flowery, flowery language, uh, and that there was no far fulfillment in view, that this was completely fulfilled in Isaiah's day in reference to Babylon. Is there anything you guys saw in the text that Jerry read that would give you pause with that kind of understanding of this text that maybe it is speaking of more than just uh, what's going to happen in the next few years with Babylon? It says all, everybody. Yeah. Everybody. And what verse is that in? Um, number uh, seven. Yeah, so therefore all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. That's pretty inclusive, right? Uh, then in verse 11, it says, Thus I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud. So that seems to be looking beyond just the 
destruction that Babylon is going to bring upon uh, the, the people of Israel. I think it looks even farther ahead than, than just that. There's both a near fulfillment with Babylon, but yet a far fulfillment that is actually going to be seen with the stars falling from heaven and uh, with the world being judged. All right, well, let's move on to the next uh, passage we have, Ezekiel 32, 7 through 11. Who had that? Jim? All right, we go ahead and read that for us. And as it does, again, keep in mind these different aspects of the day of the Lord, that there's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. When I put out your light, I will cover the heavens and make its stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give her light. And the bright lights of heavens I will make dark over you, and bring darkness upon your land, says the Lord God. I will also trouble the hearts of many people when I bring your destruction among the nations into the countries which you have not known. Yes, I will make many peoples astonished at you, and their kings shall be horribly afraid of you when I brandish my sword before them, and they shall tremble every moment, every man for his own life in the day of your fall. For thus says the Lord God, the sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon you. All right. So, who is in view in the, the narrow sense? Who is this passage speaking about in the the near fulfillment. If you guys catch that in the last verse that Jim read there in verse 11, it says, Thus says the Lord God, the sword of the king of Babylon will come upon you. So again, just like in Isaiah, Babylon is uh, in view in the, the near fulfillment of this passage. But what about the, the farther fulfillment? Are there any other things in this passage that cause you to question that being fully summed up within Babylon? That's kind of the it's it's a hermeneutical problem. It's an interpretation difference that we have with other people. So they'll go back and they'll look at these different references to like verse seven. That seems very explicit. I will cover the heavens and darken the, their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. So it's not just you know an, an eclipse because it's talking about more than just the sun. It's talking about the sun and the moon and the stars, uh, which is not just a, a local event, right? Uh, it's more universal than that, more global than that. And uh, it uses different language even within here that suggests that there's more than just Babylon in view. It's talking about many people and talking about among the nations. So I think that once again, we can understand this to be both a, a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And I I think it's pretty dangerous territory to take a, a certain kind of language and to say that that just universally 
applies to uh, language that we shouldn't really take seriously, language that is hyperbolic, that any time that the, the sun, the moon, the stars are, are referenced as falling down, that's just a, a way for God to speak of his judgment upon somebody. And then to take that and to apply it to different passages in the Bible, Old and New Testament, and say, oh, well, they're, they're just saying that, they're, that God is really mad and that he's going to pour out his wrath on people because he's using the same kind of language in the Old Testament and the New Testament in this um, mysterious way. But again, I think if we look into the text, we can see, again, it's talking about many peoples and, and many nations, and uh, it, it goes beyond just a, a narrow, near fulfillment. Says that many people and their kings shall be horribly afraid of you. Yes. I don't think that's happened since Solomon. Yeah, uh, Israel isn't really a, a terrifying force, right? Um, Not since David and Solomon. I mean, yeah. In addition to that, I mean, the reason they choose to ignore a lot of the passages in mind here is because they're coming at it from their point of view, not because they want to see what the Bible says and, and interpret it that way, but rather I'm coming at it with this particular viewpoint. So this giant cosmic event must be, you know, something that didn't really happen. And this is it, hyperbole, and this is hyperbole, and this is hyperbole rather than something that just hasn't happened yet. And to, to one degree or another, we're all guilty of doing that, right? We come to the battle with these preconceived ideas, with these uh, preconceived notions about what we believe about the Bible. And to, to some extent, that's good. We should come to the Bible believing that it is trustworthy, it's true, right? But we should allow the Bible to speak for itself. And we should develop our system of understanding from the Bible rather than taking and imposing our systematic theology upon the Bible and interpreting it the way that our systematic uh, just requires us to interpret it. All right, let's look at the, the next one. Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18. 14 through 18. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Blessed the day of the Lord. In it, the warriors, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of cloud and thick darkness, a day of trumpets and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on them so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. All right, how do you think that was understood in Zephaniah's day, when Zephaniah was preaching that to these people, thus saith the Lord? There's really no reason within that text for them to think that this isn't to be understood in the, the literal sense, that this is to be understood as well, God's just really mad at us and he's going to take it out on us. Again, what do we see in this passage that's going beyond just the, the miracle going? No sense of the whole world. Yeah. And 
if God says the whole world, I think we would be well to understand and say and mean the whole world, right? All the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. Uh, all the inhabitants of the earth. That's going far beyond just the near fulfillment of what was being spoken of there in uh, Jerusalem. And then, let's see, I actually skipped one, so I'm going to go, I'll find and read from Joel. We'll look at Joel 2. Joel chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. It says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, or in Israel, and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the Lord, for the day of the Lord is coming. There again, we see that reference, right? The day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Again, same kind of language we're seeing with these cosmic signs in Mark 13. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is great, a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it the years of many generations. Again, same kind of language that we see Jesus talking about in Mark 13, 19, right? Nothing that is before or after it is going to parallel it. It's going to be absolutely unparalleled. Jumping down to Joel 2.10, it says, Before them the earth quakes. The heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Again, I think it's speaking far beyond just the narrow. And then we had that last one in Zechariah 14, 1 through 6. Was that you, Sam? Behold, the day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the house of plunder, and the wooden rape. Half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem mm-hmm. on the east, and on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, from east to west, by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward, and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountain, for the valley of the mountains shall reach out to Azel, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come, and the whole, all the holy ones with him. Hmm. Yep. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. It, um, yeah, that's it, actually. Hmm. All right. Yeah, and as it says, on that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. Again, I think, talking about the sun not... Uh, expelling its light, right? And then verse 9, it says, The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. I definitely think that uh, the Lord is king of kings and lord of lords, right? However, he's not recognized as such by the world. He's recognized as such by us, right? By the church. We've talked about that before. The, uh, the dual aspect of the kingdom and how he is reigning right now in a very real spiritual sense and how he will reign in the future in a physical sense the already not yet of the reign and rule of our king but what about in this passage what do we see in this passage that speaks of 
a future fulfillment, a far fulfillment of the day of the Lord. I'm putting you guys to work today, making you do some Bible study. What's in here? He's speaking of earthquakes, right? We talked about that a little bit. Talked about uh, Jesus. He's speaking this as he's standing on the Mount of Olives, right? And he's going to come back in the same way that he left. That's what he told his disciples, or his disciples were told, right? That he will return to you in the same way that uh, he left. Uh, Let's see. All right, starting in... We'll just do verse 1 again. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming when spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Not just Rome, right? But all nations. And the city will be captured and houses plundered and women ravished and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from that city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. And when he fights on the day of battle. So it's talking about the Lord going out and fighting them after, which didn't really happen in 70 AD, right? Rome came in, they conquered, and they continued to thrive for hundreds of years. This talks about all the nations coming up against Jerusalem and then the Lord coming up against those nations and fighting on behalf of his people. It also says that not all of these people will be ejected from the city. Some of them will be protected. And that certainly didn't happen in 70 AD. Good. All right. Uh, before we get back to our passage, I want to look at Second Peter. Perhaps this is a question that might be floating around in your mind, and rightly so. But it was addressed in the New Testament by Peter in Second Peter three, starting in verse three. It says, "Know this first of all." So, just looking at all those passages that we just looked at, talking about the day of the Lord. What is one thing that it said about the day of the Lord and when it would come? Yeah, it will come suddenly, right? And it says that it is near, speaking about kind of the, the imminency of the day of the Lord. However, again, we should understand it in both a, a near and a far fulfillment because of the things we just went through and outlined. But um, it, it says multiple times that the day of the Lord is near. It is drawing upon you. It is coming upon you. And so look at what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 3. He says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of the Lord, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed by being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And then jumping down to verse 12, it says, looking for the hastening, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, 
because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Again, there is no reason to take that language as hyperbolic, to think that that's just an exaggeration. That's what the word of God says. The heavens will be destroyed with burning. The elements will melt with intense heat. And Peter says that people are going to come and they're going to mock. And they're going to say, oh yeah, it's going to come quickly. The day of the Lord is going to come soon. Well, we're 2,000 years later and it still hasn't come. Um, I think we need to look at these other clues within the text, not just uh, capitulate to these mocking unbelievers and say, well, yeah, yeah, you're right. Maybe we need to understand it differently. Maybe we need to spiritualize the text and allegorize the text, make it say something different so that we don't have people mocking our position. I think we can still maintain and hold on to uh, a future physical, literal day of the Lord and um, tell the, the unbelievers that want to mock to take a hike, right? Or to bow the knee to King Jesus, which is much nicer than telling them to take a hike. Well, it's, it's just a lack of trust in God, period. It's yes. bigness and it's power. It ignores all the prophecies that have been fulfilled, that were predicted long before, which were in, which were hyperbole, like the virgin shall be with child. Uh-huh. And, I mean, they, back then they would have said that was just hyperbole. And, yep. It's just they, they're, God is too small. They just don't trust him. They, yeah. Good. That's why we Why we what? It's so frustrating. Yes. People to talk like they know more than he does. It's just the foolishness. Absolutely. Let us appeal to our Lord, right? He knows all things. All right. We should understand that these cosmic signs that, well, let me get back to Mark 13, that Jesus is talking about, uh, the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from heaven, these will close out the tribulation and culminate in Christ's physical return. It says, in those days after the tribulation, these things will take place. And they're leading up to the coming of Christ. It says in verse 26, Then you will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Uh, it's going to, again, wrap up the tribulation, introduce the coming of Christ. And how is it that we know that we will... Uh, see a, a physical return rather than some spiritual return of Christ or some ethereal return and reign of Christ? How do we know this is to be a, a physical return? It says it right here. You don't see the Son of Yeah, they're, they're going to see him, right? It's not just they're going to experience the wrath of his judgment, which is what people say, that Jesus came back in, in judgment in 70 AD. And yeah, maybe in a sense we could say that. Um, it was definitely the, the judgment that God uh, ordered for Israel from the Romans, right? Uh, ordaining everything according to his perfect will. But it says that they're going to see Jesus coming back in the clouds in great glory. All right. And so, again, we need to remember that it's prior to the tribulation, before the tribulation, uh, that Jesus will come and rapture his church. And halfway through the, the tribulation, that last 70th week of Daniel, that's when the abomination of desolation takes place. Following the great, following that will be the great tribulation. Then the signs in heaven, 
right, according to verse 24, after that tribulation, then the signs of heaven. And then the second coming, verse 26, then you will see the Son of Man. You see the sequential format that Mark is laying this out in. And then, in verse 27, he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. So who are the elect that are spoken of here if the church has already been raptured even prior to the tribulation? If we've already been raptured and glorified and have returned with Christ, uh, like Zechariah 14.5 says, that he will come back with his saints. Who are the saints that are being gathered up here in verse 27? Any thoughts? Because the church is already gone, right? But what's taking place in between the rapture of the church, like we see down there at the bottom, and the, the tribulation? You think people are going to come to Christ during that period? Absolutely. Yeah, you better believe it. We're told that, right? There are going to be 144,000 witnesses, Jewish witnesses that are going to go out and they're going to uh, be evangelists. They're going to proclaim the, the word of the Lord. We looked at uh, Revelation 14 and how the angel is going to be proclaiming the gospel from the heavens, flying over in some supernatural, un, like a, a way that I don't yet understand. Uh, way and he's going to be proclaiming the gospel to to everybody to every tribe tongue and nation and people will respond to that people are going to be calling out to christ and uh, bowing their knee to king jesus during this time period so the tribulational saints are in view Uh, all of remaining israel right Um, romans 11 talks about how all israel will be saved that's going to be of course after they're weeded down a little bit and two-thirds of israel is Uh, destroyed and killed during the tribulation but then the other third everybody that's remaining they're going to likewise bow the knee to christ and they're going to be saved so they're going to be in view with in verse 27 when these angels are going out they're gathering together the elect notice that it says from the farthest ends of earth to the farthest end of heaven so it's not just talking about the the tribulational saints and the and remaining Israel. Oh, there we go. Uh, but also, uh, it's talking about those who were saints in the Old Testament. So additionally, we'll be joined by the Old Testament saints and um, yeah, Christ's church will be there as well because we're going to be coming back with him to reign for a thousand years. So all of his saints on earth and in heaven will be gathered together to usher the into the millennium and will be reigning with Christ in the millennium for a thousand years. Again, that's a lot just in four verses, right? 24 through 27. Any thoughts on any of that before we move on? All right. We'll see. Yeah, we need to get through 28 through 37, but I think we should be able to do it. All right, so uh, remember a couple of chapters ago, in chapter 11, Jesus used this illustration of the fig tree when he came out of the temple and he cursed a fig tree. There, he was using that as an illustration of Israel, how he was drawing a comparison between the tree that looked good from a distance, it looked good on the outside, but it wasn't bearing any fruit, and he was making that comparison, that illustration, uh, 
in reference to the religious Jews of the day and how outwardly they were good, but inwardly they were a bunch of dead men bones, right? Um, this is not the case here. We shouldn't understand the fig tree here to have any reference to Israel. In fact, Luke, when he's speaking about it in Luke 21, he just talks about trees in general. And uh, maybe I should go ahead and read the passage for us. In 28, it says, Now learn this parable from the fig tree, that when its branch has already become tender and it puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So this is just a reference to timing. Be looking for the signs, right? Just like a a fig tree or like Luke says, any other tree, uh, when it's starting to leaf, you know, okay, well, summertime is coming. Very simple illustration. We don't need to look beyond that, make any comparisons to Israel because that's not what we're told to do here. Uh, actually, he's hearkening back to their questions concerning timing, what to look for. Remember, this whole section, this whole all of that discourse has started off and, and launched off with the disciples asking these questions after Jesus says, yeah, there's not going to be one stone laid upon another, which was literally fulfilled, right? Not in a spiritual sense, but it was literally fulfilled. And they said, okay, well, tell us, when will these things take place? When are you coming back? When is going to be the end of the age? And now Jesus is answering them, look to the fig tree, look to these signs, because the signs are going to point to the answer, just like the leafing fig tree is an indication that summertime is coming. All right. Uh, I have a whole section of stuff that I'm going to skip over. That's okay. All right. Verse 29 says, even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near. He is right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Verse 30 has been the source of much disagreement, right? Uh, Many hold to the idea that Jesus was referencing the generation of disciples, the generation that he was talking to, saying that they wouldn't pass away until all these things took place. That term, all these things, that's very important, right? He's not saying just some of these things are going to take place, but all these things are going to take place. And um, that includes Jesus coming back and riding on the clouds, all these cosmic signs that we just looked at, all these things are included in that statement that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And yet many want to say, well, of course all these things took place. Of course Jesus came back. Um, only he did so in a, a spiritual sense to bring destruction upon Jerusalem. And again, to, to do so is to employ an entirely different, entirely new hermeneutic, an unfounded method of Bible interpretation that we're not told to, to look for. Um, if, if Jesus gave this prediction about the temple and it was fulfilled literally, we should understand this other prophecy which he gave in connection with the destruction of the temple to also be fulfilled literally and curiously uh, a common argument for for doing so for understanding Jesus' coming back in a spiritual sense has been based on the critique of unbelievers I've heard both R.C. Sproul and Jeff Durbin, men that I like and appreciate and uh, have benefited from and, and point people towards I've heard both of them quote Bertrand Russell in his book, um, called Why I'm I'm Not a Christian, and talking about how he points to this verse and he says, well, 
Jesus said that he was going to come back and he didn't come back. And instead of critiquing that, these men say, oh, you know what, You're, you would be right to critique that. And in fact, um, if, if we understood that literally, then yeah, Jesus would be a, a false prophet. However, Jesus did come back. He only came back in a, a spiritual way. And they went on to uh, just assert that given a literal understanding, Russell and other atheists, they would be justified in their understanding that Jesus had prophesied falsely. Um, and therefore, it's necessary to, to both understand and teach this passage as being spiritual or allegorical so that we don't give ammunition to these unbelievers. That's their, their response. Because of the, the critiques of these unbelievers, we need to understand this passage spiritually. Or we could just interpret and understand the Bible as it presents itself in a literal way without allowing our hermeneutic to be swayed and shaped by unbelievers. Unbelievers and their critiques against the Bible shouldn't have any bearing against the way that we understand and interpret the Bible. Again, just like Peter said in 2 Peter 3, there will be mockers. There are going to be people who come and say, what's going on? It's been forever. That doesn't mean that we should change the way that we understand and interpret the Bible. In 1330, Jesus is speaking of the generation that will see these events take place. Yeah, uh, right next to each other. Yeah, right yes. after that. He says, you're going to see the Son of Man coming in power and glory. And then he says in 38, say to you that this generation, the, the one that I've just been speaking about that's going to see these things, they will not pass away until all these things take place. It's going to happen within a period of a generation. It's going to happen quickly. It's going to happen rapidly. It's not going to be a, a long, drawn-out process. It's going to start quickly, being launched with the abomination of desolation. And all these things are going to happen quickly. These seven trumpets, these uh, seven bold judgments, they're going to come rapidly and quickly and increasing and uh, accelerating in pain and severity. Um, it's going to be unparalleled tribulation. We've seen that several times, right? It's not going to be like anything that came before, anything that's going to come later. And it's going to culminate in these cosmic signs and Jesus' return. Uh, it's going to be absolutely uh, earth-shattering, right? It's going to be something that is novel and new and unparalleled. Uh, it's not going to be spread out over millennia it's going to take place within one generation and it was not that first century generation of the church that saw all these things take place you can't just take some of these things and say yeah well some of them took place and so it must be only referring to 70 AD again I think there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of foreshadowing going on there a lot that was prefigured in 70 AD but that cannot be the, the fulfillment otherwise we have to say that that Christ has already come back, though the second coming has taken place. And nor should we see this as any sort of false prophecy of Jesus, right? Like Bertrand Russell would say. Um, but he is not our standard. He is not our, our guide, right? We need to follow Scripture. Um, Jesus was fully aware of who he was talking to and the fact that his words would be preserved for later generations. That's why he says in verse 31 that, yes, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus knew that 
these words would go on, they would be preserved, not just for us, but even for those who are going to be going through the tribulation, through that period, it's that generation that he is speaking to. Um, and we see that even in verse 32. Um, in case verse 30 didn't come with enough questions and uh, controversy and concern, we have verse 32 for us right hereafter, which says that of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, or nor the Son rather, but the Father alone. What is interesting or thought-provoking about this verse? Jesus doesn't know something. Yes, Jesus, God in the flesh, that he doesn't know something. That is a little bit interesting, right? However, we have to remember that uh, this is Jesus speaking during his incarnation. Uh, that Jesus has voluntarily laid aside uh, his divine prerogatives, not his divinity. He hasn't laid aside his divinity, not his divine attributes but the divine prerogative that he has to, to know things. He has laid aside his glory, as we read about in uh, Philippians 2. And uh, we talked about this quite a bit earlier in our lesson, almost a year ago, when we were in chapter 1 talking about the temptation, the baptism of Jesus, the, the hypostatic union, how he can be fully God and fully man. Um, he has laid aside these certain abilities and I think that he absolutely knows now we see in Acts 1 a little bit later when the disciples are asking him when are these things going to take place he tells them well that's not for you to know right I think that he now has um, full knowledge of everything so Jesus lack of knowledge concerning the exact day or hour should be understood in light of his incarnation um, and now following his death resurrection and ascension uh back to the glory that he once knew with the Father, right? John 17, 5. Um, that he now, that this self-imposed limitation that he had on himself has now been lifted and he perfectly knows the day and the hour of his return. All right. And Jesus goes on from there in 32 through 37 and he's really warning this same generation. We need to understand he still has the same generation in view the tribulation generation is going to be seeing all these terrible things take place. I think Jesus is speaking exclusively to them at this point uh, through his words that will not pass away. So starting in verse 33, he says, Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midday, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. So four times, just in these few verses, we read that... Uh, we read this warning to be on the alert. Again, I think this should be understood with the, the utmost importance um, that this is speaking again to that same generation that he was speaking to before. This um, is a, a big flashing red sign warning to them, right? Several times over and over again, be on the alert, be on the alert, be on the alert. He had the same audience in view that he had uh, as he was relating this 
previous warning. He is offering this uh, severe warning to the same tribulational generation that he had previously addressed. Uh, he's encouraging them to pay attention to these signs that he's laid out, uh, that they not be caught off guard. Um, the same lesson that's to be learned from the fig tree before, right? That we need to pay attention. It's a, a matter of timing. The, if the fig tree's bearing leaves, then summer is right around the corner. Pay attention. Look for these signs. Don't be surprised. Uh, once again, he's not warning the church. We will have already been raptured at this point, but it's for those who remain during the tribulation. And then, uh, it's interesting to note, in verse 35, these different references, these time references, are references, they're uh, Roman references. Remember that Mark is writing to the Romans. And so when he's talking about these references, um, we should know that that, that is specific Roman terminology. I'll share this quote with you real quick from JMAC. It says, the Romans 12, the Roman 12 hour watch from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. Uh, consisted of four three hour periods. Those intervals were generally identified by when they ended. The evening at 9 a.m., midnight at 12 a.m., the time when the rooster crows at 3 a.m., and morning at 6 a.m. His return could occur at any hour, even in the middle of the night. So those are all Roman references, and it's pretty cool to uh, connect that with the fact that Mark is writing to the Romans. All right, and then lastly, even as that generation is to be on the alert, so we should all realize that death is certain, unpredictable, and final. And we should make sure that we are also alert and ready. Uh, realizing that while Jesus has the tribulation uh, in view, we can also make application here. That's why he says, what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. We are past time, so we will wrap up. Thank you, guys.